Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, in sunny Hollywood, Florida, where I'm participating in something called the Seminole Hard Rock Poker Showdown which is uh, kind of a mouthful, but it looks like poker is alive and well here in South Florida, where they've actually had to take the tournament out of the usual poker room and put it in the convention area because there is so much interest and they have lots and lots of events going on. I'm going with the uh, smaller buy-in events. I played yesterday in a $200 buy-in that has a $150,000 guarantee that looks like it's going to be completely shattered by the end of the week. So, uh, yeah, no problems in live poker in the state of Florida. Also, just to make some of you up north a little jealous, it's 85 and perfectly sunny here. So uh, please don't hate me. But, yeah, I'm enjoying life in uh, the southern part of these United States. I want to start off this episode by apologizing for missing last week. That pesky comedy career of mine keeps getting in the way of our fun. And I was just, I just didn't have time to record an episode. I was traveling, I was busy, and I missed you guys. So this week we are going to be uh, answering a couple of tweets and continuing our review of coverage of last year's World Series main event as seen on Poker Go starting in the end of day two, coming up. But first, I want to address a couple of tweets that I received. Uh, One of them got actually quite a lot of traction on Twitter because it was not only addressed to me, it was also addressed to uh, people who know a lot more than I do, like Andrew Brokus and Jonathan Little. Chad Gardner at CW Gardner tweeted out, Poker players, do you have a personal threshold above buy-in at which you always cash out. When do you lock in your winnings? I like the idea of a defined amount to avoid an emotional decision later. Now, if you didn't see this thread on Twitter, Andrew and Jonathan did a terrific job of you know addressing the points brought up, but I wanted to talk about it here on the podcast because there's one part of this that was not addressed and I think should be. So the the big picture is if you're ever sitting at a poker table in a cash game with so much money that you're starting to feel emotional about potentially losing that money, then you're probably playing too big to begin with. So and this was the point that Jonathan Little made. For example, if you buy in to a 2-5 game in Las Vegas for let's say $1,000, And you don't feel like $1,000 is a lot of money, but you do feel like $4,000 is so much money that if you lost it, you would feel emotional and possibly trying to decide what to do in a certain spot. You might end up thinking about the $4,000 that you have in front of you. Then yeah, you should be playing one, two or one, three, because it's not the buy-in that should matter to you. It's the amount of money you could realistically accumulate in that game that should determine whether or not the stakes are too high for you. So 
The short answer is no, we don't want to cash out. In fact, your winning sessions should generally be longer than your losing sessions. It is a proven fact that it's easier to win when you're winning. There are several reasons for this. One of them is that your opponents may fear you more. They might say, oh, that guy's winning. He must be really good. Whereas if you're losing a lot, players tend to take more shots at you and it's harder to bluff in spots where bluffing might normally work. But because you've been losing all day, they're like, I'm going to call him because he might be on tilt. Things like that. Also, people don't like to bluff players who have heaps and heaps of chips in front of them. And the reason for that is they just think that you don't have any fear of losing whatever amount of money they're choosing to bet in that spot. And so they are less likely to bluff you. A good table image. Also, from your own standpoint, let's be honest, guys. None of us are robots. And I tend to play better when I'm winning because I'm not worried about the money. I mean, obviously, none of us ever want to be worried about money while we're playing poker. But let's be honest. If you're down two or three buy-ins, you might be thinking, man, I'm stuck so so big in this game. It would be nice to just win some of that back and call it a day. We all do that. Now, the best among us don't let that affect our decisions one way or the other. But I'm happy to admit well, not happy to admit, but I'm willing to admit that I do uh, think about the money that I've lost a lot more than I think about money that I'm currently winning. Hopefully, it doesn't affect my decisions. I like to think that I'm good enough at this game after all of these years that it doesn't actually affect my decisions, but I'm not going to say that I never think about being up or down in the game. So with all that said, there are a lot of reasons to continue playing longer sessions when we're winning and not have a win goal in mind. Like if I get, if I'm in that two, five game, we mentioned, if I get up $2,000 or $3,000, I'm going to quit and lock up the win. Look, your cash games are really just one long session, right? You could take all the hours you've spent playing cash games and you're either up or you're down. It's really just one long session, but we take breaks in between, sometimes for months or even years at a time. So think of it as one, one long session and never quit based on being up a certain amount. Now, here's the part that wasn't addressed in the thread that I decided not to get involved in on Twitter because it may be somewhat controversial. I know that for me, well, kind of correlated to the comments I just made about being aware of how down I am or how stuck I am in a particular session, I do reach a certain point where I'm unable to make my best decisions. You can call it tilt. You can call it emotion. Uh, but I know that when I go to play in a cash game that I have a, a stop loss, a loss limit. So if I'm going to play, let's say, 2-5, I might even just show up with 3000 in my pocket. So that's 3 you know, double-sized buy-ins. Most 2-5 games in Vegas nowadays allow you to buy in for $1,000, 200 big blinds. And so if I end up losing all three buy-ins, that's 600 big blinds. And it may affect my ability to make good decisions if I continue to lose after that. I might be a little more inclined to take a big risk. For example, if I flop the nut flush draw and I have three opponents, in a spot where I might normally just check and call, I might go for the check raise, thinking about trying to get some of that money back. Now, to be clear, guys, I'm not saying this is how you should play. 
I'm saying that I'm a flawed human and this is what happens to me when I find myself in for three or more buy-ins. So because of that, and by the way, it doesn't matter what stakes I'm playing, it's the third buy-in at 1-2 feels the same to me as the third buy-in at 20-40. I don't know why, but this is how I am. And because of that, I will typically stop playing after I lose the third buy-in. The exception would be if it happens very quickly, so I've only been playing for an hour and I still feel relatively fresh. Uh, and of course, if the game is particularly good, like if the reason I'm stuck three buy-ins is because I keep getting it all in really good against a terrible player and he keeps sucking out on me, in those circumstances, in extreme cases, I will stay and continue to play. But where I will never set a win goal for any amount of money in any buy-in level, I do tend to quit and live to fight another day after losing the third buy-in in a cash game, unless, of course, the game is worth sticking around or whatever. So that's my personal rule, and I'm not advising you guys to do that. But what this does for me is I tend to quit before I go on tilt. Many times when we're on tilt, we don't realize it until later on when we discuss our hand with our coaches or our poker buddies, and then you realize that you were actually trying to get revenge on someone or chasing, you know, <laughs> what's the expression where you're chasing after good money with bad money or something like that. So I make sure I never get into that situation just by quitting before tilt even begins to rear its ugly head. Now, how about I cost myself money in the long run by doing so? I'm not sure. Maybe I have. Maybe there were some sessions where I quit a loser where I actually had I just stuck it out could have won the money back and quit a winner in that particular session. But to be honest with you guys, I don't care because I see it as one long session. So who cares whether I played 48 times and won 31 and lost 17? Who cares? It's one long session anyway. So that's my personal take. And that's what works for me as a means of avoiding tilt. Now, I'm also pretty good at checking in with myself. If I lose a couple of buy-ins and I feel like I'm not having fun and I haven't lost the third buy-in yet, I might pick up and walk away. That's what's great about cash games as opposed to tournaments. And I know this is a tournament podcast, but we're talking about cash games right now. One thing that is so great about being in a cash game is you do not have to stay. Now, if you win a big pot right away and pick up your chips and leave, the players will give you a hard time in many casinos. You know, what are you doing, a hit and run? You know, your answer should be, I can come and go as I please. I've decided I don't want to play at this table anymore, and I'm leaving. And, you know, they might call you every name in the book, but they're not allowed to make you stay. Obviously, in a tournament, we have to stay at whatever table they assign to us, and we don't have the option of leaving until we either lose all our chips or bag up for the end of the day. So... That's my take on that, and I thank you, C.W. Gardner, Chad, for uh, including me on your list of players that you wanted an answer uh, to this question to be given. So uh, I have another tweet that is very off-topic. If you thought that cash game hand, or cash game question, rather, was off-topic for a tournament poker podcast, wait till you hear this one. Jason S. Simon on Twitter, Jason S. Simon tweeted me personally, at Clayton Comic, I'm curious about your take on the Chris Rock Will Smith Oscars incident. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, guys, but several of you, including Jason 
ask me what I think. Um, I think in many cases, I'm the only comedian a lot of you guys know. So let me just say, I think the whole thing was a big publicity stunt. Both of these guys have huge projects coming out later this year. Chris Rock, his world tour, and Will Smith, some new movie or whatever. So look, it just feels to me like a brilliant publicist would say something like, we don't have uh, anybody watching the Oscars right now. Going to the Oscars is almost not even worth it at this point for A-list celebrities, as both of these guys are, because the viewership has been declining for years and years. And I also think that to make it worthwhile, you need to have something after the fact. Well, if it was a publicity stunt, then it's probably the best one I've ever seen in my lifetime. Because here it is several days later, almost a week later, and everyone is still talking about the slap heard around the world. Um, it looked a little bit fake to me. I know many of you think that it looked real. You got to remember, both of these guys are excellent actors. And, you know, uh, taking a slap is not really that hard for an experienced actor. I don't think that if someone is walking towards me looking angry, I would choose to keep my hands behind my back as Chris Rock did. So that's my first indication that he either didn't see it coming at all, which would mean that he didn't notice the look on Will Smith's face. And we don't get to see Will's face because the camera is showing Chris Rock's face and we only see the back of Will's head. But I imagine he wasn't smiling on his way to the stage to you know slap the crap out of somebody. So... I don't think that I think that he stood there to take the slap and was kind of bracing himself for what he did know was coming. And then everybody would talk about it as they knew. And it's all anyone's talking about. Even on this poker podcast, we are talking about it. There's no such thing as bad publicity. You may have not have thought about Chris Rock for the last five or 10 years, but you know his name right now because he's in the news. So I don't believe everything I read in the papers, as they say. And I think this feels to me like a setup. Another reason why it could be a setup is Will Smith's reputation has been suffering a little bit in recent years as Jada has been revealing to the press the nature of their, their relationship involves uh, you know some outside activities, some extracurricular partners, and things like that. So it's been kind of a joke in Hollywood that Will Smith is uh, not a real man or that his relationship with his wife is not so good or something like that. And what could be more masculine and, and manly than a man taking up for his wife and saying something like, keep your wife, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. And so this kind of changes the conversation about Will as a person and about the status of his marriage. Now, let me be clear. I have no evidence other than my own two eyes and my powers of observation that's the only thing that I have telling me that this is all a big fake and a publicity stunt by a brilliant, brilliant mastermind of a publicist. I could be wrong, okay? I'm not giving you guys any inside Hollywood information, but when I put two and two together, this is my take on the whole incident. And I think that's enough time spent on the Tournament Poker Edge podcast talking about Hollywood gossip. So let's get back to what we actually are here for, which is tournament poker. We're on day two of the main event. Uh, we are at the table that we've been uh, discussing here on the podcast. Some of the players at this table 
are Doyle Brunson, Jason Kuhn, and one of the tournament chip leaders at the time, Ardit Kershumi from Israel. So the table is pretty well stacked, and we're going to start with a player named Lee Zhou. And Lee is under the gun. The blinds at this point, I should tell you guys the blinds, the blinds at this point are still 600 and 1200 with a 1200 big blind ante. So there is 3000 in the middle and Zhu is sitting on a stack of 31,000. So her M is right around 10 and she's only got 26 big blinds. She's under the gun at the table I just described holding the ace of clubs, 10 of clubs. To me, this is a very clear, very pure fold. Now, I don't care if you guys want to go and plug it in to PO Solver or whatever other robot you have at home that's going to tell you that you should be opening with this hand under the gun when you have 26 times the big blind in your stack. I don't care. If I'm sitting there under the gun against Jason Kuhn and Doyle Brunson and two seats to the right of the trip leader in the tournament who happens to be Israeli and extremely loose aggressive, I am folding my ace, 10 of clubs, like it's the easiest fold in the world, okay? Solvers be damned. I don't want to be out of position with this hand, with my skill disadvantage against these guys. The other extreme could be I'm planning to get all 26 big blinds in before the flop. So I'm raising, hoping one of these crazy guys three bets me so that I can shove. Now, I don't want to shove with an M of 10 with ace 10 of clubs. And I certainly don't want to raise and have to fold because I get three bet, which I'm almost definitely going to. And I also don't want to call and have to play a bloated pot with a short stack from out of position against the likes of Jason Kuhn. So that's my case for just folding this hand pre under the gun. Uh, Lee Jo disagrees with me and decides to make it 2700 and I wish her luck. A player named Rivera, I'm sorry I don't have his first name in front of me, calls from third position, so two to our left uh, with 85,000 behind. And I don't want to tell you what these other guys have. We're going to play this hand from the perspective of Lee Jo. Uh, Jason Kuhn also calls from the cutoff position, and he's got 175,000. Doyle Brunson is in the big blind, and he's getting about 7 to 1, and he also calls. So good for you, Lijo. Now you've got three opponents. You've got ace of clubs, 10 of clubs, and you're going to be one of the first players to act in this inflated 13,000 pot, and you only have 28,000 behind. I guess I hope I flop two pair. I don't even know what I want. I guess some clubs would be nice. Anyway, here comes the flop, and it is queen of clubs, eight of clubs, six of diamonds. So queen, eight, six with two clubs. Hero, <laughs> in quotation marks, in this hand, holding the ace, ten of clubs. So we have a flush draw, an overcard, and several potential backdoor straight possibilities. So it's clearly an above average flop. Our SPR is just over two. And Doyle checks to us. I think we need to bet here. I, I would be trying to get my whole stack in on this flop. Again, I wouldn't be playing this hand in the first place. But if you do, guys, this is the flop we want. There should be a continuation bet. And nothing in the world could get me to fold this hand. 
All right, look, the average stack at this point in the tournament is something like 75,000. We only start the hand with 31,000. So we've got half of a starting stack. All right, the average stack could be closer to 90,000 because it's kind of late in day two. Yeah, so let's say it's probably close to 90,000. I kind of forgot that we started last year with 60K instead of 50K. So yeah, the average stack is probably close to 90,000 at this point in day two. You've got one third of the average stack. You just flopped a nut flush draw and an overcard and two backdoor straight draws. Let's get it in. Come on, let's go. Instead, for reasons I'll never understand, Li Zhou decides to check. All right, I don't get it, but okay. Rivera puts in 3,500 which is a very small bet into the 13,000 pot. Jason Kuhn folds his hand and Doyle Brunson calls. And now the action back on Lee Zhou and Clayton is jumping up and down in his living room, screaming at the top of his lungs, all in, all in. This is even better than what I wanted. I wanted to bet and hope to get all in. Now I've checked and I've got a chance to check raise two opponents. And I know I have some amount of equity in this pot. And I'm sure I have some amount of fold equity because it's just a dinky little one-third, less than one-third of the pot bet, followed by a call from Doyle. So let's go. Let's shove the whole 31 in. At this point, there's already 20,000 in there. We've only got 28,000 behind. Let's get all in and see if we can hit our flush or take it down right now. Let's go. Lijo just calls. Okay, guys, generally speaking... I'm a little too aggressive, all right? But I can tell you most assuredly that passive play does not win poker tournaments, okay? We took the lead before the flop. We got a very good, very favorable flop, not just for our hand, but for our range in general. With our under-the-gun raise, this is a good flop for us, for both our hand and our range, and we need to play it aggressively. If you're not going to lead out with a C-bet, on this flop, you need to check raise. This hand made me physically angry. When she just called, I actually got mad and I'm a little embarrassed to say so. But that's what happened. And now three of us are going to see a turn. We only have 24,000 ish left in our stack and there's 23,000 in the pot. So for all intents and purposes, we have a pot size bet behind. And the turn is the 10 of hearts. So the board is now queen of clubs, eight of clubs, six of diamonds, 10 of hearts. So we now have a pair to go along with our nut flush draw. And Doyle, out of nowhere, bets 15,000 into the 20,000 pot, 23,000 pot. This is a great reason to have check raised the flop. Now what are you supposed to do in Joe's shoes I mean, when Doyle puts in 15,000, we're sitting here with all kinds of equity. We've got the nut flush draw. We've got second pair, which could be good. I mean, who knows what Doyle suddenly woke up and bet with. And now we're in a tough spot. I think it's a shove. Joe decides to fold. And I don't know. I mean, I guess given the way she played the hand, her goal was to preserve some of her stack. So she folds second pair with... Rivera yet to act behind her and I guess it's defensible but it's certainly not <laughs> anywhere near the optimal way to play this hand uh, Rivera calls behind and at this point now that Hero has folded I'm going to tell you what these guys had Doyle is sitting there with the nine of spades seven of clubs so he flopped 
an open-ended straight draw and turned the nut straight. Uh, Rivera has pocket eights. So he flopped middle set and is now behind Doyle straight with three of a kind. So if you want to be results-oriented, I suppose you could say that Joe played the hand perfectly <laughs> because there's no way she was going to get either of these guys to fold their hands either on the flop or on the turn. But I don't look, as you guys know, I don't look at poker from a results-oriented standpoint, which is why I did not want to reveal the opponent's hands in this example because you might say, well, good for her. She got away from it when she was in third place with just ace high or a pair of tens rather. But look, that's not really the way to look at it. The correct way to view any poker hand is to take the long-term view and look at the hand in the long run. I think in the long run, she's going to make more money or lose less money, I should say, just by folding under the gun in the first place. But if you're going to raise, then when you flop the nut flush draw, you've got to play it aggressively, either with a bet or better yet with a check shove, which is what I would do on this flop. Uh, instead, she doesn't get a chance to realize whatever equity she has left, realize she is drawing live, very live. She has whatever number of clubs are remaining in the deck to win this whole pot and actually have an above average stack in this tournament late on day two. Instead, she folds, denying herself all potential equity. And then she just has to hold her breath and hope that the club doesn't hit the river because then she'll be kicking herself probably for at least seven months until the next main event. So instead she folds and Rivera calls with his three of a kind. I actually give props to Rivera for realizing that he doesn't want to go for a check raise here. Um, that turn does complete two different straights. I think I actually misspoke earlier when I said that Doyle turned the nut straight because I now realize that Jack-9 actually makes a better straight. I'm not sure Doyle, Doyle would have check called with... Uh, just the gut shot there on the flop. But yeah, he doesn't have the nuts. He has the second nuts on this turn card before you all email me telling me that I made a mistake there. Uh, which, by the way, I want to quickly address those of you who tweeted that when I was saying that Doyle's check raise was so big in last week's hand, uh, you guys are online players. Believe me, that is a very normal raise sizing for being an online player. But in live poker, Raise sizing tends to be much smaller, especially when we check raise or three bet as opposed to online. Now, there are exceptions. Different websites have different norms, but typically in live poker, any raise gets more credit than it does online. So the sizing can be smaller and achieve the same effect. But getting back to this hand, uh, Doyle bets 15K and Zhao folds Rivera calls and the river is the four of hearts. And now with 53,000 in the middle, Doyle has only 65,000 behind now that all this money has gone in. And Doyle bets 25,000 on the four of hearts river. Doyle still has the second nut straight. Now what the heck is Rivera supposed to do with the set of eights? Doyle woke up betting on the turn and now bets without shoving on the end. It feels like value. It probably is value. But if I fold three of a kind to this legend, like how can I sleep at night? I mean, I don't know. I hate being Rivera in this situation. I don't know that Doyle is real big into the check 
call lead into two opponents very much without a big hand. And whether he would make this sizing if he had just missed his flush, which is probably one of the few hands that Mr. Rivera can actually beat with three eights. I don't know. I suppose queen 10, right? Or maybe other two pair combos like 10, 8, 8, 6 might bet again. Maybe, but I'm not sure. We've got a queen, an 8, a 6, a 10, and a 4. So any suited one gapper basically has a straight right now. Rivera sees that, and obviously we know Doyle sees that as well. So would he even bet most of his two pair combos? Uh, Would he bet a set? Like if Doyle had flopped a set of sixes, that hand kind of makes sense. Um, I don't think that pocket fours are in Doyle's range for betting 15,000 on the turn. So it's hard for me to put Doyle on a hand I can beat in Rivera's shoes. But getting a little more than three to one on a call, he can't resist and calls rather quickly with the set of eights, at at which point Rivera gets the bad news that Doyle had turned a straight and got a lot of value for it. Interesting question, what happens if Doyle shoves on the river? He's got a little more than a pot-sized bet remaining in his stack at that point in the hand. So what if he just overbets shoves? Does he get maximum value for his straight often enough to make shoving more profitable than the little value bet that Doyle chose to do about half the pot? So... That's the question I have for you guys. Let me know what you think about this one. You can tweet me as always at Clayton Comic. Uh, I want to do another quick hand from day two of the main event. But before I do, I want to remind you that if you haven't yet signed up for Tournament Poker Edge, now is the best time to do so. It's April. We've got the World Series of Poker coming out. We've got two mystery bounties coming up this summer at the win. You guys know I'm going to be playing all of those. The schedule uh, for the win was just announced this week. All the big poker is happening in about eight weeks. So don't you want to get ready for that? You can have access to all of our incredible coaches, which of course includes names like Andrew Brokus, Alex Fitzgerald, and so many more for as little as $25 a month. And now you can save $10 off of your first month's membership by using the code PODCAST at checkout. Visit TournamentPokerEdge.com. All right, so let's move to a different table. Same day, same blind levels, but we're moving to a different table. Uh, This table features one of my least favorite poker players of all time, Mike the Mouth Matisau, who opens from second position uh, to 3,000. So the blinds, remember, are 600-1,200. And Matisau is opening to 3,000 from second position at a full nine-handed table. Uh, let's talk about Matisau, his general playing style, and what his range for doing so might be. Now, Matisau may have had a time in his life and in his poker career when he was capable of having a pretty wide range for opening from early position. But at this point, he's basically scared money. He's a total nit. And the fact that he's made more than a typical raise size here is also indicative of a very big hand. I think that he's only doing this with your premium pairs, ace-king, ace-queen, possibly ace-jack suited, and very few other hands. I think that Matisau would be folding ace-10, suited or unsuited, probably folding king-jack, off-suit, 
king jack suited, all those types of hands are just not in his range for opening from early position. He's sitting on a stack of about 80,000, so he's right around the average. He's playing in the main event. He's always preaching about how tight is right and stuff like that. So if I were at the table and Mattisau made this large open, again, large for live, guys. Like It might not be that unusual to see a 3K open at the same blind level online, but I'm telling you guys, in live poker, it tends to be smaller, more like what we saw at the other table, 26, 27. A little bit bigger can be a bit of a tell. So I would put him immediately on a premium hand. I want to talk about the player in the low jack. His name is Shiram Rezamiri. I hope I pronounced it at least close to right. I believe he comes from India. And he is in the low jack holding pocket eights and decides to call off of a stack of 41,000. Okay, his M is 13. He's got 35 big blinds and he's got pocket eights. Uh, I do not like this play at all. I think that you should just go ahead and fold your eights against Matasau. He's always going to have you either beat or in a coin flip at best. Uh, he's not opening pocket sevens. Trust me, guys. I know his playing style and his opening range from early position in the main event is not going to include pairs below eights. So we're never going to have him crushed. We're either in a coin flip versus his range or he's got us totally crushed himself with a hand like pocket aces. So eights are no good. Also, we don't have the kind of stack that I would want to have to be set mining, especially from the low jack. So the problem with calling, hoping to hit an eight and play fit or fold is that you're mostly going to fold and your stack is too short. Your M is 13. You've only got 35 big blinds. I would like to have an M of at least 15, hopefully more like 20, uh, especially because there's some chance I'm not even going to see this flop. There's still plenty of players yet to act behind me and I'm going to end up folding my eights or worse yet, getting them all in bad before the flop against a very tight player, Mike Matisau, or the three betting range of the player behind me, which is mostly going to have eights also crushed or in a coin flip. So just throw your eights away. The main event is not like your daily $100 turbo at your local casino. These are the spots we need to avoid, guys. It's not a profitable call, period. So he calls from the low jack, and then it goes all the way around to the big blind whose name I didn't even jot down, but he's got pocket sixes. So three to the flop, and there's 10,800 in the middle, and uh, the second player in the hand, Sharam Rezamiri, has only 3,800 left, so his SPR is now about three and a half, which is definitely not what you want when you have pocket eights. The flop comes queen of hearts, seven of spades, five of clubs, queen seven, five rainbow, and the big blind, remember who has pocket sixes, checks. Matisau, whose, hands, whose hand I have not yet revealed, bets 10,200 into the 10,800 pot. And now the action is on Shiram Rezamiri. As far as flops that don't contain an eight are concerned, this one is pretty damn good. Queen, seven, five. So he's got a pair above middle pair. But the problem is, Matisau, who raised really big before the flop, is now betting almost the pot, and I've only got 3,800 
38,000 rather, in my stack. So what the heck am I supposed to do? Well, what you should have done is folded your eights in the first place. But now that you're in this spot, I think you just have to throw them away. Do you really think that Mike Matasau is ever playing ace-king this way in any year past 2003? Because I don't. I think it's always going to have us beat. And so we've got to throw the eights away. Rezamiri folds, and so does the big blind. Gets away from pocket sixes. So at least they played that hand well. But Matasau didn't exactly make it hard. I mean, by betting the pot, he basically can only get called by a better hand, like or maybe ace-queen, right, on queen-7-5. So Matisal played this hand pretty badly, I think. He had pocket kings. I can now reveal he had pocket kings, and both of his opponents folded, and that's how you fail to get maximum value for an overpair on day two of the main event. Well, that'll do it for this episode. I hope to have some hands for you guys next week. From the Seminole Hard Rock Poker Showdown, in which I am engaged for the next several days here in Florida. Unfortunately, my comedy schedule will not allow me to play the main event in this thing, but that won't stop me from playing in uh, several other tournaments uh, this week that I should be able to tell you guys all about on next week's episode. So, for everyone here at Tournament Poker Egg, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Hold them like they do in Texas plays Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun Oh, wow